0: We have a lot of explosions here. Uh, Some of them rattle the windows. Um, You know, you kind of quickly learn the difference here between outgoing and incoming, and um, you want to be on the right side of outgoing.
1: That's Steve Hendricks. Usually, he's the Jerusalem bureau chief for The Post. But lately, he's been covering the war in Ukraine. He's holed up in a hotel in Kharkiv right now. And over the weekend, he was able to get into a town further east the town of Chagoyev, on the edge of Russian-occupied territory.
0: And we got to this town just about seven hours after its hospital had been bombed. Uh, it's been shelled quite a bit in the last several days because of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Uh, it's sort of a Russian tactic to uh, really unleash on a lot of these communities as they're being pushed back so it was a very strange moment when we got up to this hospital, which had had most of its one side blown away. Every piece of glass in that building was gone. We could see patients moving around inside, you know, even though the building had been destroyed, some lying on stretchers or gurneys in the hallways. And there must have been uh, 100, 200 regular folks from this town around the hospital, sweeping up glass with the little straw brooms. Men were... You know, using their own power tools, electric tools, to start replacing doors and windows. It was quite a remarkable aftermath for a bombing. It was almost festive, and I think it it was because the people knew that that this violence, you know, while terrible, was a mark that things had changed. This was this was a victory for them. And I remember one woman in particular. Her name was Natalia Kapuzova and she just said, everything is going to be Ukrainian again. And she held her broom in the air and said, we're all ready to march into Russia. Her husband and her son are both in the army. And, uh, you know, here she was in the middle of the sort of destruction that would be pretty much unfathomable for most of us, uh, just euphoric. It was a, remarkable moment of community solidarity, and uh, it's it's what I began to think of as the U- Ukrainian victory mood, which has become more and more pervasive in the last four
1: days. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahi Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Monday, September 12th. Today, we hear from Steve about the sudden Russian retreat from key areas in Ukraine, why it's happening, and whether it actually is a dramatic shift in this months-long war. Later in the show, we take you to a place that's still under Russian occupation, and we meet one of the local leaders trying to hold his community together. Steve, where were you this weekend? Can you tell me what happened there and what was it like?
0: Well, we were actually further to the south when word came out uh, late Thursday that Ukraine had launched sort of an unexpected and obviously major counteroffensive in the northeastern part of the country outside of the major city of Kharkiv. So we quickly got up here, and by the time we arrived there were already reports that uh, Ukrainian forces had liberated many, uh, at least at least several uh, villages that had been occupied by the Russians since very early in the invasion, uh, since the end of February. This was quite striking news. Nothing like this has happened, really, uh, since the Russians pulled out of areas around Kyiv in the spring. And it was sort of, uh, everyone had been waiting for this major offensive, and everyone was looking for it to happen in another part of the country down in Kherson. So it caught, uh, it certainly caught us off guard, and it seems to really have caught the Russians off guard Mm -hmm. because the Ukrainian advance just continued to build through the weekend.
1: You were on the ground in a liberated area, Zeliznitsynia. Can you tell me what you saw and what the people you spoke with, the Ukrainians, were saying? What was it like being there?
0: We managed to get into this village on Sunday, and we were some of the first people to talk to residents who had been under this Russian occupation for so long. It was a pretty grisly scene in some cases. We were there when investigators were uh, digging up two bodies of, of two Ukrainians who had been shot, apparently, by Russians. And we talked to their neighbors who said that their crime had been to be having lights on being a little bit loud and and drinking after the very strict six pm curfew, and you know the villagers said the residents of this very small town said that these Russians were mostly very young. They would ask them, "Why are you here? Why are you doing this to to us?" And their answer was, "You know, we we have a choice. We can either be here or we can be in jail." So there was even a little bit of of sympathy that these older they're almost all elderly people who have stayed behind for this long uh, had for the for the young Russian soldiers, and they described the moments of their retreat last week on it would be Thursday and Friday almost with pity these guys had been left behind a lot of the soldiers Russians left immediately when the Ukrainian soldiers started moving into the area in their vehicles. These young fellows would would radio for someone to come back and get them, and they were essentially told, "You're on your own." And so we were told by by people who said they came into my house and they stole, they took my clothes and dressed as a Ukrainian um, c- civilian, so the drones wouldn't recognize them as soldiers. They stole bicycles to ride away. We talked to one woman who, whose husband was held at gunpoint until he turned over his. Car keys. Um, they dropped their weapons where they in the streets and in the fields in some cases, and we saw stacks and stacks of uh, ammunition that they had left behind in the sawmill that they were using as their military base.
1: So, how did this happen? What led to Russian troops leaving these areas?
0: You know, it seems to be a combination of some very clever planning and some. Pretty crafty execution on the part of Ukrainians. They they mounted this other offensive in the more southerly part of the country. Everyone was looking at that. Russia definitely sent significant numbers of troops that way. And then suddenly, this push in the northeastern part of the country began, and Russia wasn't able to handle it. Their troops sort of collapsed one village after another. You know, it does represent a relatively remarkable collapse of Russian military acumen. And it's having a lot of reverberations uh, in both countries.
1: Yeah, I want to learn a little bit more about the geography of this pullout and the significance of this region that they left. Um, So can you tell me about that? And then also, where have the Russian forces gone?
0: This part of the country is extremely Close to Russia, there's a major Russian city within about 60 kilometers of where I'm, where I am right now in Kharkiv, and it has been a gateway for Russian supplies uh, as they prosecute the war in several parts of Ukraine. It was the first area that they really got control of. It was really early, you know, just the first few days of the war. A lot of these uh, territories and villages were under Russian control as they have been ever since. So by pushing through that swath of occupation, Ukraine has succeeded in pushing the Russians, some of them back into Russia. We, we know that. Um, mm-hmm. They'll probably be redeployed. There are other ways to get into Ukraine. But some of them have also gone further south to the area known as the Donbass, which is the eastern region of the country that Russian-backed separatists have been fighting in for for several years now. So that's going to change the dynamic there, but Ukraine is actually close to being so successful here that they're pushing all the way to that area and may actually succeed if it continues like this in reconnecting these two parts of the country, giving Ukraine a a real military advantage Hmm. uh, as it keeps Russia from advancing and trying to push them back even farther.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do we know how much ground Ukraine has regained in recent days?
0: well it's significant uh, president vladimir zelensky of ukraine has said you know just yesterday that it's more than 1100 square miles um, and that's been not quite confirmed but a lot of independent military analysts including a lot of the the british uh, defense ministry folks that we all look to mm. have acknowledged that the amount of territory they've taken is significant and actually is probably more territory in these last 5 days or so than russia was able to take since the spring, since about April. Um, Mm. So there's, if there's still questions about how much it is, there's no question that it's a significant amount.
1: Steve, I'm wondering how Ukrainians are receiving this development. I mean, this war has dragged on for so many months. How is this moment landing with them?
0: It's a complete change of mood here. I I this is my fourth rotation through through Ukraine since February and um I've been here for a month this time and um you know the the war had become a very dangerous stalemate. A lot of shelling was going on but not a lot of advances on either side whatever advances were occurring were definitely being made by Russia down in the that Donbass area where they were slowly you know gobbling up uh, new territories after demolishing one town after another with artillery so it was not a particularly bright mood when when i was here uh, arrived here a few weeks ago mm-hmm. that has just pivoted since friday uh, it's jubilation doesn't even begin to describe it all it's very emotional it has really really put the wind back in the sails of, of Ukrainians, we, the village residents that we talked to yesterday, some of them were, were, were sobbing um, in joy and also in frustration and disbelief that they had experienced a very unpleasant, brutal occupation in the 21st century. Yeah. A lot of disbelief there. One of the first residents of, of this liberated village that I met was uh, a woman named Olena Matviyenko. She was standing out in front of her house across the street where some um, investigators were beginning to dig up uh, bodies of, of her neighbors who had been shot by the Russians. And I think just talking to an outsider for the first time kind of brought a lot of this out for her. She was immediately in tears. and just almost asking uh, us the question, how could this have happened to us? How could we have just gone through uh, this eight, seven months of occupation in the 21st century? And she began to tell us about the lack of food and uh, the fear and her sometimes pleas with the Russians to, for, in one case, move the tank from in front of her house, because that was a target for for shelling. It was quite an outpouring, not just from her, but from several people we talked to. And we could tell that uh, this day represented to them not just the literal freedom to move around, but it's sort of an emotional release that I think was very important to many of them.
1: Steve, I'm wondering, though, is this... Latest development, the the jubilation that it's caused, as you've described it, um, and, and sort of putting the wind back in their sails. Is it in some ways more of a symbolic victory than an actual strategic one, and or, or is there some real strategic significance in what's taken place?
0: I think the answer to that is sort of changing by the day. At first, everyone said, "Well, this is you know a very welcome development. Um, it shows sort of once again how much determination the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian people have in, in fighting this war." But I would say the military analysts that I've talked to in Ukraine and in London and in Washington—they're beginning to take this much more seriously as a strategic turning point in part because it shows how Ukraine is capable of executing a very complex and fairly secret operation like this. And it has uh, revealed the hollowness of the Russian military, not for the first time in this conflict, but the complete collapse of morale and determination among Russian soldiers, the failures of command and, uh, and communication and control. I've talked to to some analysts who say there's just not many options left, um, mm. Russian President Vladimir Putin has been very reluctant to create a general conscription that would give him the kind of um, manpower that he probably needs to really turn the tide here. So I think we're looking at what might shape up to be a, a you know a significant deflection point in this war.
1: Mm-hmm. And and how are Russian officials? taking this latest development?
0: Well, the Russian officials are defiant and sort of don't acknowledge defeat, as, as we have seen them do um, throughout the, the conflict. They characterize the massive retreat of their forces from from this region, you know, as a, as a strategic regrouping. But, you know, their defense ministry has published maps that do show the territory they've given up. And that has created a backlash it isn't widespread in in Russia, but it is, it is really happening in some quarters, including among some very hardline Kremlin supporters, people who want the war to be fought
1: mm-hmm. in
0: a much more ruthless fashion. They are critical.
1: Mm-hmm. So what's next? Does this latest move... Mean that Ukraine is winning?
0: <laughs> I think in the last few days we've we've gone from asking, you know, is this a is this a successful counter offensive, to asking is this a turning point? And now we uh-huh. are beginning to hear that question: Is Ukraine winning this war? <laughs> Not for me to say here, but you will hear that in the voices and the in the predictions of Ukrainians and. You know, I think some military analysts would say that um, uh, the picture looks entirely different than it did uh, just last week.
1: Thank you, Steve.
0: Good to be with you, Elahe.
1: Steve Hendricks is the Jerusalem Bureau Chief for The Post. This story was produced by Renny Svernovsky. After the break what it's like in the parts of Ukraine still under Russian control. We'll be right back. Now we turn to the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. Conflict is not new for this region. There has been intense fighting there since 2014 between Russian-backed separatists and Ukraine. Seizing this territory is one of Vladimir Putin's main objectives in this war. The Donbass is still largely occupied by Russian forces who have made significant gains there since the start of the invasion. That includes taking the frontline city of Papasana, Many of papasana's residents have fled, including its mayor, Nikola Hanatov, who is still trying to do his job from more than 150 miles away.
2: While in eastern Ukraine, we went to this town called Novomoskovsk. Now, while there, what we discovered is that the mayor of Popasana had set up a hub for town residents that had fled the invasion.
1: That's Post reporter Dalton Bennett, who talked with our host, Martine Powers. Dalton and journalist Anastasia Halushka bring us the story of the working mayor of Papasana, a mayor without a city.
2: Essentially what the mayor has done, his name is Hanatov. he set up a government in exile while he tries to hold his community together that has been completely displaced in his experienced unbelievable suffering at the hands of uh, Russian f- forces that were trying to seize their town. But I want to I want to have a picture where I and look back at the situation and be like, I didn't know what to do, but I managed
3: to get out of it. Yeah, I it out.
2: Anatov is... The mayor of Papasana, and he's just one of those guys that you meet that is, you just wonder where his energy comes but from. Western Oblasts mm-hmm. and and are also very, very, They very, very,
3: very, 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 He is a
2: person that is from that community, Hmm. was born in that community, had the chance to leave the community, decided to come back. He met his wife there in eighth grade. He has a 17-year-old daughter that um, also he raised there. So he is a guy that absolutely loves where he's from and says that his soul is in the town of Papasana no matter where he is in the rest of the world.
4: Can you talk a little bit about what his city was like before this all happened and, and what his job was like before the war?
2: Papasan is a city of 20,000 that's in the eastern Ukraine. It's in the region known as the Donbass. And since 2014, this town has been on the front lines of the conflict between the Ukrainian government and the separatist-held territories in the region. It's a city that has experienced unbelievable turmoil and suffering since 2014. But in recent years, the Ukrainian government has really dedicated resources in helping to revitalize this area and helping to show residents that were from this region that, look, the Ukrainian government is able to provide for you life here is much better than anything that could be possibly offered in the separatist-held territories or in life under, you know, Russian occupation. Mm. So steadily what we saw over time and from the residents that we talked to is that there was a real conscious decision to invest in that area and improve the lives of people so that they would decide to stay there and help make the city that was on the front lines a livable place.
4: So what was it like in late February once the war started and how did that play out for this mayor?
2: According to the mayor in early February, at first things were quiet in Papasna. You know, they the mayor had spent a great deal of time organizing ev- evacuation plans for residents, got local government officials together, in order to institute this plan. And what they were finding is they would send a train to the city of Papasna, have it wait for 12 hours, and only 10 people would board.
3: People who left uh, Pappasana the first day, train, they went back a week later because they were like, they're not there.
2: During the beginning of the invasion, it was relatively quiet there. People were a bit surprised. I mean, obviously, this area had been so close to the conflict for years, yet not a single shell had landed. But everything changed by early March, when Russian forces in the area turned their sights on taking control of the city. You know, speaking with the mayor and and other town's residents that were there, they described unbelievable chaos and sorrow that was unleashed by this invading Russian force. It was being incessantly shelled around the clock with virtually no part of the city safe. At one point, the mayor described a set of circumstances where the town had actually run out of gravestones. The situation was so dire that the mayor had to organize a truck to go collect bodies that were in the street. What they would do is... Oftentimes, they did know who these people were. They would just write the set of circumstances and items they might have found on this person on a piece of paper and put it inside of a plastic bottle and bury that person with the plastic bottle, hoping one day that when the conflict had ended, someone could then go and figure out who these people were that the city was having to bury. Once the shelling intensified in the city, the mayor working together with the rest of the city department heads and the heads of the various public utilities, they all came together and put all their effort into trying to keep the lights on, trying to make sure that everything was working in the city, meanwhile organizing huge evacuation efforts. They're taking buses, going around to houses and shelters, convincing people to leave Obviously, you know, residents had lived through the previous conflict, right? They'd lived through 2014 when the town was temporarily occupied by Moscow-backed separatists. They were – obviously, they were hesitant to leave. You know, based off of past experiences, things weren't so bad. But, you know, the mayor fought tooth and nail to convince people to leave the area.
3: So that was at the time that the head of the financial uh, services yeah. came to him and said we have to like, evacuate all our yeah. stuff. And he said, no, we're not doing everything like loading up in a bus because people are going
4: to start panicking. So as things were getting worse and worse in the city, and I can imagine more and more residents were starting to fear for their lives and and decide to, to leave, at what point did that happen for the mayor? Like, when did things get so bad that he realized that he couldn't be there anymore?
2: The last time the mayor would see his city was on Orthodox Easter. He made a quick visit to his apartment building. While he's inside his fourth story apartment, he has this sort of glass enclosure that he walked towards. And from that area, you can see out into certain areas of the city. Hmm. And while he's standing there, all of a sudden the shells start landing. He realizes that, you know, where he's at right now is completely exposed. It's a a mad dash down four flights of stairs. He's racing down the stairs. He makes it to the entrance of his apartment building where there's another entryway to get into the basement, but there's a gate and it's locked. So in this moment of panic, Hanatov grabs the bars of the gate, bends them and is able to you know, squeeze his body through these bent bars, crawling on his belly down a small flight of stairs into an area that was better protected from the shelling. While he's there, he realizes his neighbors in his building are are also huddled, uh, taking cover.
4: And, And then what does he do once he's in the basement of this building?
2: He waits. He still doesn't know how long he's going to be there for. The shelling is getting closer and closer. When a neighbor tells him, look, after they shell for 40 minutes, the firing team needs 10 minutes to reload their artillery before they start firing again. He waited, and he was able to escape from the area where he had taken shelter, sprint to his van that was still intact, waiting outside, and drive and escape from his city.
4: Oh, my gosh. So, So, what does day to day life look like for him now, knowing that his residents are both dealing with really difficult circumstances now because they have all had to leave the city, but also the fact that they need the same things that they've always needed um, in terms of services from from their city government what What does he do all day? like what are the things that he's trying to prioritize?
2: The mayor works with a team of 15 volunteers and former city officials that spend their entire days fielding requests for assistance from residents that are displaced across Ukraine, some of whom are actually living and trapped inside of the city that is now occupied by the Russians.
3: So we're staying in place to, like, be able to turn, like, to get back, like, the the structure's staying in place to return soon and to be able to to immediately start the work. And rebuild.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's everything from requests to sorting out pensions to birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates, or asking advice on how they should relocate to another area. I mean, residents are contacting the mayor through... Email, Facebook, text messages—right? He's just inundated nonstop with requests for assistance.
3: Any, any kind of uh, uh, confirmation that this person is living on that, yeah. on that, like on that territory, yeah. and has a right of—they
4: um, like, are the
3: ones that represent them. So I think have you to, to, them in to the get any information,
2: right. Working with this team of of local government officials and employees. He then is able to delegate and assign tasks to these folks who then are able to help as many people as possible. Meanwhile, in this makeshift hub that they've set up, they're organizing weekly humanitarian aid deliveries for residents of Papasana that fled to cities that are now close to the front lines and active in areas of active fighting.
4: What do you think the story of this mayor and his situation um, tell us about the general state of the war in Ukraine?
2: You know what the mayor's story tells us is that people are not ready to accept the loss of their towns and cities and homes to the Russian invasion.
3: This, this fear, so he's going back a couple yeah, of questions. He's yeah. like, look, yes, I'm scared. I'm really scared, but this fear also kind of strengthens motivates me, motivates you. me to yeah. actually meet that
2: fear. Yeah. The case of this mayor and, and those people that we met just proves is that, like, town residents have not given up on, on this fight. They believe that the Russians are only temporarily occupying this area. And everything that they're doing is to hold strong and hold fast for the day that their town is liberated.
3: So there are moments where this, like fear, for example, like not 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 knowing where to go, yeah. kind of takes yeah. over yeah. him, yeah. Um, and, and it wants it wants to take over and maybe even paralyze him, but yeah. he kind of pushes it away yeah. and just doesn't allow. Go away. Yeah.
4: <laughs> Dalton, thank you so much for this
2: story. Thank you.
1: Dalton Bennett is a reporter and researcher for the investigative unit at The Post. Anastasia Halushka also contributed reporting. The story was produced by Lexi Diao. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and Rennie Svarnovsky. It was edited by Rena Flores and Maggie Penman. I'm Ella Izadi.